Well, it's wonderful to be here. Your staff should be commended. Nikki and Kathy and Pastor David and Pastor Mike. It's just awesome. I, once again, I have never met Pastor Mike till today. I talked to him on the phone. and um, But I can say this about your pastor. He has a worldwide reputation for being a man of love and a man of restoration. And he's a restorer. And to me, that's all I need to know. Paul said, let him who is spiritual restore gently those who have fallen. In other words, if people got issues, which is most of us, and the other ones have an issue of denial. We need a father figure to be around to restore us when we get our head all messed up. And you've got a great man over this place. You do. And give him honor. It's an honor for me to be here with you. I want to talk to you tonight. Well, you guys don't even know me. I, this is all I do for a living. Like, I just travel and speak and travel and speak. I live completely by faith. I do come under the authority of three different pastors, and I have a fourth one advising me now. And then I have a board of people, but I, of men, but I don't, um, I don't get a salary from anywhere. It's just straight living by faith. And um, I love it that way. I just love it. I love teaching the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I just love it. And the primary way we support ourselves is obviously through love offerings. And also we have a resource table that will be available to you tomorrow. You can see it out there. And um, just obviously these messages are just one message for one moment at one time. There's no way we could cover everything we want to cover. And so you can sow something into your own life and by getting the word into your life. And let me sow something into you that will uh, revolutionize the way you look at God. And allows you to sow something into our ministry. Let's just go to the next place and the next and the next. And I think you'll agree after this weekend that these messages need to go all over the world. Um, and it's just, it's just an awesome privilege to be able to get together like this and, and examine the Word of God. I want to talk to you tonight about your life with God. And I want to share my own story, sort of. And just allow, allow some insight. Maybe something in my story will help you in terms of how I learned to walk with God. And it, did you bring your Word tonight? Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Jesus is talking, we've got to remember now, Jesus is a first century Jewish rabbi. And like he's coming from this perspective and there's all kinds of innuendos and different things that, that they would have seen and thought of immediately. And we're going to talk about a lot of those this weekend. But one of the common things when you had a rabbi, if you were a rabbi's disciple, is you would ask him things like, what is the summation of the Torah? Like, because the Torah was so big and broad and wide and, and, and you couldn't get your head around all of it. So they, they wanted to please God. So they would ask their rabbi, can you just sum it all up in one or two sentences? And so they would ask Jesus things like this. And Jesus would say things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And they, they would ask him things about money. And they would ask him things about marriage and kids and all kinds. And they'd ask him how to walk with God. And in one occasion, they, Jesus was teaching people how to walk with God. And, and he's talking about prayer. And in verse 5 he says this, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret. That's the key I want to talk about tonight, is what is done in secret. Your Father who, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the Pentecostals do. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Lighten up. 
For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, our walk with God, um, it, it, that kind of, for me, it cut out 90% of my praying at the time because my praying was making requests and making requests and making requests. I needed a paradigm shift. And there's so much in this. He says, he says this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now there's all kinds of, of Hebraic innuendos here and there's all kinds of a, a Hebraic kind of concept of Father I don't have time to go into and really a Hebraic concept of heaven which is really, the, the word there actually, if you're going to translate it heaven, you have to translate it heavens. Like this whole thing of, uh, it, it actually the most common translation of that word would be air that we breathe. There was this, there's this concept that, that, that we have in, in, in our Western world, which our translations come from, that God's way up there and we're way down here. I mean, surely Jesus wasn't saying, when you pray, say, my Father who is in a place I have no idea where it is, hallowed be your name. Because where's heaven? Like, really? Like, where's heaven? Heaven. What he was saying was, if in, in the, I, I, I don't have time to break all this down, but basically their idea of Father was a supplier or generator of something. So he was saying, my supply that is in, as close to me as the air that I'm breathing, hallowed be that name. Hallowed be that name. The word hallowed there is the word hagiadzo, which just means to render, acknowledge, or become aware of. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, in John 17, verse 6, you don't have to turn there. In John 17, verse 6, he says this. Father, he's praying again. And he says, Father, I have manifested your name. I have manifested your name. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, whatever you hallow in secret, you'll manifest in public. Jesus hallowed the name of his Father in secret. And so therefore, in public, he manifested it. He said, Father, I have manifested your name. In other words, I have become everything you are to a group of people. I've showed them everything you can be. And I knew tonight I'd be talking to leaders. So there's a lot of people with prophetic giftings and teaching giftings and evangelism giftings. There's a lot of giftedness in the room. And I, and I have something to tell you that in, in the first century, that a ministry was judged, specifically prophetic ministry, it was judged, whether or not it was true was one of the judgments, but the first judgment on a prophetic ministry was whether or not it was delivered in the disposition of Messiah. It was whether or not it was delivered in a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love way. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. In Psalm 103, uh, uh, David's writing about it, and he goes, he goes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name, and forget not His benefits, who heals all of your diseases and forgives all of your sins. He's the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God, who does not treat you as your iniquities deserve, but gives you mercy that's new every morning. That's the disposition of Messiah. The compassionate gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. And my question to you tonight is this. Do you minister in the disposition of Messiah? Very good, very good. You can minister well and it be outside. Do you realize that in those days that you could give a prophetic word that was spot on, but if it was delivered in an uncompassionate, ungracious, not abounding in love way, it was considered false prophecy. 
Because first of all, it has to be delivered in the disposition of Messiah. And the way to develop the disposition of Messiah is to hallow it in secret. Because what you hallow in secret, you will manifest in public. What you hallow in secret, you'll manifest in public. I grew up old school, like Pentecostal holiness. I don't even know if that exists over here. But like it was, it like my my grandmother has, is 87 now, and she's never cut her hair in her whole life. So she wears it all up in a bun, and she's never worn slacks. She's never she's never worn makeup, never worn jewelry, never. And she still to this day gets saved five times a day. Because every time you sin, God leaves. Like, like this was a, this was a, it was a major. So I was, I was grew up in church in, a, in an old school Pentecostal holiness system, but then I was discipled in an independent, fundamental, premillennial Baptist school, <laughs> which left me very confused about God. Those two people only agree on two things: how to be saved, and that everything's a sin. <laughs> everything. You can't think of anything that's not a sin. And so I would get saved every Sunday. Every Sunday I got saved. Because every time you sin, God left. And I couldn't make it to a week without sinning. Right? And so in, in, in 1981, the, the Pentecostal Holiness Salvation numbers were up because I, I got saved every week. So there's 52 salvations right here with me. The Pentecostal Holiness Church is... In, it, I mean, seriously, you, you'd have a church of 80 people with 5,000 salvations on the book because people got saved all the time. And so it was that kind of system. Now, in the Baptist school, you couldn't lose your salvation. But, but God would just get mad. So if you, sin, if you sinned in the Pentecostal church, God left. If you sinned in the Baptist church, God got mad, but he let you into heaven. But you get to spend eternity with a mad God. So, so, so this, is what, this is what my life looked like. I would get saved every Sunday. And then on Monday, we'd have chapel in the Baptist school. And you couldn't get re-saved, but you could rededicate your life. So I would rededicate my life. And then on Wednesday, we'd have chapel again. I would rededicate my rededicated self. And then on Friday, I would rededicate my rededicated, rededicated self. And then on Sunday, I'd get saved again. And pray to God he didn't come back on Tuesday or Thursday because I needed, I wanted to make it. Like, that was bondage, man. Like, it, 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 was, it was bondage. I was messing with my grandmother once. She was, like, I think it was her 81st or 82nd birthday. I was messing with her. I said, Granny... Let's go get you made up. Get you a good haircut. Get you some makeup. Get you some nice pants. Yeah, just, just get you some. Just get you all dolled up, you know. And she said, "Oh no, babe." She said, "I'd hate to send myself to hell. Maybe somebody else too." And I said, "I can see sending yourself to hell, but somebody else? How do you get that?" She said, "I'd hate to give a man a lustful thought." <laughs> show up in a bikini to a sex addicts conference, they'll be okay. Like, come on. There hasn't been a lustful thought about you in years. Anyone, like, nothing's in the right place. Like, it, like, come on. It's bondage. It's bondage. And so I started hallowing all kinds of things in secret. Like the Bible says, to be still and know that He is God. 
you know what I did? I would be still and know that I am bad. <laughs> Which in a way is healthy. In a way there should be a sense of be merciful to me a sinner, oh God. I have no hope but you. In a way that's healthy. But in another way, what I hallow in secret I'll manifest in public. And when I hallow guilt, I acted guilty. Hmm. We always hallow things. Anybody in here besides me ever hallowed anger? Mm-hmm. Anger, listen, you might hear this again tomorrow, but I'll give you a snapshot of it because this is so important. Anger is not an emotion you can afford. It's not an emotion you can afford. I, 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 have, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I can tell you that when you get angry, the average person loses 25% of their IQ. The reason is because the blood leaves your brain and it goes to the major muscle groups to prepare for a fight. The average IQ is 100 points. Dysfunctionally retarded is 70. So when the average person gets angry, they are this close to retarded. <laughs> and think about it. Have you, ever, have, you ever, have you ever said anything that you regretted when you were angry? Have you, ever, have you ever said anything smart when you were angry? No. Some men get so mad they can't even complete a sentence. So they grunt. I know men that's gotten so mad they put their fist into a wall that doesn't move. Brilliant. Brilliant. If you're here tonight and you're married, and two of you get mad, you've got two mentally retarded people trying to solve a problem. Diminished capacity at the best. See, see, but, but we hallow anger. Has anybody besides me ever been in a conflict situation and when you walked away you thought of everything you could have said? Mm. Do you just let it go there? Or do you have imaginary conversations? I love imaginary conversations. You love imaginary con- We love imaginary conversations. Why? Because you never lose. If you're losing imaginary conversations, get your head checked. It's your imagination. <laughs> and so we hallow anger. We hallow getting our way. We hallow, has anybody ever besides me ever hallowed depression? Mm. Anybody besides me ever had a successful depression? <laughs> it's brilliant. Anybody besides me ever hallowed rejection? Somebody broke our heart? And so we convince ourselves that everybody's going to break our heart from now on. And we hallow it. And we build it around our life. Hmm. Anybody besides me ever, ever hallowed um, insecurity? Anybody besides me ever hallowed, oh, what if they don't like me? Hmm. What we hallow in secret will manifest in public. We create our own sort of atmosphere that draws it to ourself. And with God, I hallowed my own guilt. I hallowed this thought that God didn't like me very much. I, I had this thought on my bed at night that, that God really didn't like me very much and, and, and that he was, at the end of the day, he was mad at me. And that if I did 98 things right but two things wrong, I'd go to bed thinking about the two things I did wrong. Has anybody else ever found themselves in that? Like, like it's, 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 it's total sin consciousness. Like, like we go to bed, I, I hallowed it. And, and, I, and I thought maybe by hallowing it, I could make myself feel worse about it, which would make God maybe like me just a little bit more. But what I found is that the more I hallowed it in secret, the more I manifested it in public. 
And I realized that I was having a real problem relating with God. And the reason I was having a real problem relating with God is because of all the things. It wasn't God's problem, and it wasn't an intelligence issue, and it wasn't a study problem, and it wasn't a lack of discipline. I, I tried to do all kinds of things. I made a deal with God. I'd get up at 5 o'clock every morning and pray for an hour. As if God's more impressed with somebody who prays at 5 versus somebody who prays at 9. As if God's impressed with anything, really. God's impressed with Jesus. That's about it. And so, and so, and so I, I made this deal with God. Maybe I did all of these things. I would strive and strive and strive. And it was all because I was hallowing something in secret. So I was manifesting it in public. And I had to learn to change my imaginations around God. I had to learn to change my thoughts around God. I had to learn, I had to, learn to start thinking about truth in a different way. Because I, I, it wasn't working. My life wasn't working. I was becoming a minister, and I had all the talent in the world, but I wasn't ministering in the disposition of Messiah because I was putting things on people that was really my issue. I was putting my guilt on people when I preached. And that's very dangerous when you have a talent. Because the gift and calling of God's without repentance. You can mess it up like nobody's business, and God's gift's still on your life. And so you can really mess some folks up. And I was... I was and I'm going to talk more about this Sunday night. You're not going to want to miss Sunday night. Sunday night is going to be outstanding. But I'm just telling you, I, I, I was really, I got myself into a situation where I could minister powerfully, but yet walk away. And I knew that I had missed God because there was something missing. And what it was missing was the compassion, the grace, the slow to anger, the abounding in love God. I was ministering in the same way that, that the old school Pentecostals used to minister to me. They, I, I'd walk away feeling guilty and bad, and that's the only thing I knew. So I hallowed it in secret, and I manifested it in public. My, all that guilt, all that insecurity, all that stuff, I just I manifested it in public because I was hallowing it in secret. Now, what I, one of the things, I just want to share one thing with you tonight that really helped me change my imagination around that. And that was this, starting to see the Bible through the filter of a wedding. The idea that God actually wants to marry me. He calls us the bride of Christ. And that's just a concept. But actually the whole Bible is like a wedding manual. It's a, it's a wedding proposal. And, and, and I, start, I want to share this with you tonight. And I, I really felt inside myself this afternoon that, that, that this part of my journey, because I can't share my whole journey. We've got 30, 40 minutes, and that's it. And, and, and I, I, want to, I want to hit you with something that really impacted me big time. And that is this, that God desperately, desperately wants to connect with me. That God desperately wanted to connect me. I never really had that thought. I knew it here. But how many of you know, if we make a theological bullet point out of something, it's far different than making a heartfelt... I mean, do you realize Hebrew people feel thoughts. Greek people think thoughts. Greek people, which is all of us in here, all of us in here, which by the way, sir, at any point this weekend, if I make you mad, just tell me, I'll back up. <laughs> In my scanning the room, I just got to look at those biceps, and I thought, <laughs> I will do nothing to tick you off. What you hell of a secret. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Greek people think thoughts. Hebrew people feel thoughts. We're all Greek because we all come from Europe somehow. And, and, and so, we, we have an ability to make bullet point doctrines out of anything. When I was in Bible college, I wrote my final paper on the attributes of God, my freshman doctrine paper, to, to, to go to get to my sophomore year. I wrote it on the attributes of God, and I was sitting there writing a paper 
about the power of God. And all I could think of was I was hungry. Because it was just a bullet point to me. Let me prove it to you. You're, you're, this is leadership. You guys are all saved. I'm not worried about that. But, so, so if we're all saved, how many of us in here believe that we've been forgiven of all of our sins? Yes, that's right. Right? We believe that, yes. right? Believe so all of us believe that. But how many of us have felt guilty in the last two weeks? So we believe something, specifically guilt about something in our past. So we believe that God's forgiven us. We believe it's been wiped off our record. But instead of feeling innocent, we still feel guilty. That's because Greek people think thoughts. Hebrew people feel thoughts. A Hebrew person would read a scripture like, you've been recreated in righteousness and true holiness. And they would stop and they would say, God, what would I feel like if I could feel innocent in your sight? Mm. This started changing my imaginations with God. Today, to this day, this morning when I woke up, I didn't get out of bed until I asked God this question. God, what would I feel like today if I could feel innocent before you? Because if I hallow innocence in secret, I'll manifest innocence in public. I asked God this question this morning, laying there, and I used the covers as a, um, as a visual aid for me. And I said, God, what would I feel like if I could feel you covering me now? If I could feel your presence wrapping around me? If I could feel that you were as close as the air that I'm breathing, what would I feel like if I could feel it? Changed my life. Started doing that every day. Because I knew if I could change my hallowings in secret, I could change where I was manifesting in public. And I needed to learn to feel that God really liked me. I knew God loved me, but I didn't even know that God liked me. And when I started seeing that this is just one aspect, I want to share this with you. This happened all the time in Hebrew culture. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the end, and then I'm going to work up to it, okay? There's five steps to a Hebrew wedding process. And I'm going to spell them up here. I'm going to say them in Hebrew and I'm going to show it to you in the Bible. And, and then I'm going to hopefully bring this around to where we really have something, a tool that will help us. And, and if I'm sharing my story and it's not helping anybody but me, fair enough, this is good therapy. Okay? Step one was called Laka. Laka. That was the part of the relationship where somebody declared, I want to make you mine. I want to make you mine. So it was, it was the part of that relationship where if you and I were together, I would, I would say, I want to make you mine. It's basically, in the 70s, I think they called it going steady or something. <laughs> in, in, when I was a teenager, we called it going together. I don't know what they call it now. But I, I want to make you mine. I declare, I want to make you my own. Laka. The second step was called... Now remember, this happened all across Hebrew culture. The second step was called segula or segula. I've heard it said both ways. And I don't know the Hebrew language, so I, I know what the books tell me. And I've heard it said both ways, segula. Segula was the second step. And that was the part of the relationship where I actually declare, not only do I want to make you mine, but you are my treasured possession. You are the apple of my eye. You are the most important person in the world to me. You are my treasured possession. Segula. The third one, the third step, was called mikvah. 
mikvah. And that was the part of the wedding process where, where they washed. They, they cleansed. Um, to think of it spiritually, it's kind of getting all your stuff straight before you say, I do. Um, they would symbolically wash, clean, this sort of thing, mikvah. The next part was called ketubah. Ketubah. And, and that, was, that was the wedding contract. That was, the, that was the marriage contract. Every Hebrew marriage had a marriage contract, and it was called a ketubah. And what would happen is this. Is let's say you and I are getting married, and you're way out of my league, but it's okay. All right? No last year. Nah. No, we're okay. Yeah. So, so what would happen is, is, is if, if me and her were getting married, after I would declare laka, I would just in Hebrew I would just say laka, which was a declaration of I want to make you mine. At some point later, I would say segula, and in her mind she'd be like, it's we're, we're moving along here. Huh? Huh? The next step would be mikvah. That's when you know I'm real serious when I say, okay, it's time to wash. It's mikvah. When they baptized people, they baptized them in a mikvah. It was a public declaration. They baptized people anytime they, they changed social status. So anytime they went from unclean to clean, specifically, they would baptize them in a mikvah to declare an open public. They can be touched now without being contaminated. All right. Then the next step would be my family and her family would get together and we would make a ketubah, which was a marriage contract. So in other words, I can, I can put anything in this, in this marriage contract I want, and she can put anything in this marriage contract we want, so as long as we both agree. So that, that at the end of the day, the boundaries and the expectations of our marriage are set in place on paper, and it's signed by both of us. Ketubah. There would be a bride price in there, like your family would charge my family for me to marry you. There would be a doctrine of oil, bread, and shelter in there, which basically says that I have to support her. There would, there would be things in there around sexual expectations, all kinds of things in there. All, all, all anything, the, the ketubah was, was the, the, the clearly set out marriage expectations. Now when we both agreed on it, we would sign it. This, you want to hear something cool? Then we'd stand up and we'd face each other. And as the groom-to-be, I would say, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And she would say back to me, when will you return to receive me unto yourself? And I would say, I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves the wedding chamber, he will send me back. Hmm. It's all wedding language. Every Hebrew person listening to Jesus say that would go, he's talking about a wedding. This was wedding language. It happened every week of every year in first century Hebrew culture. And so it was the it was the it was the marriage contract. The last one was called Hupa. I'll write it up here. Oops. Hupa. You guys know what a hupa is? It, it's a it's a Jewish marriage altar. It, yeah. Yeah, it was a covering. They thought of it as a covering of God's presence. And what would happen is, is the ketubah would be signed. We would do the little, I go to prepare a place for you thing. Then I would go back and I would make a marriage chamber. And when my father approved the marriage chamber, 
We would come back and we'd, we would get the bride and we'd go to the place where the marriage chamber was and we would have a wedding. And this wedding ceremony would happen and after the wedding ceremony, we still weren't married. I would then take my, my wife to the entrance to the wedding chamber and I would catch her up. Do y'all do, do that in New Zealand where you carry your wife under the... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good thing for some and a bad thing for others. But... Yeah. And so I would carry her under the threshold. And what, they, what the wedding, what the, the groomsmen had done is over the, the marriage bed, they would have taken a, a prayer shawl which was they thought of as the covering of God's presence with four stakes and they would they would make it over the bed as a chuppah and then they would leave and then I would catch her up which was catching her up that's where we get the word rapture from and then I would take her into the marriage thing and we would consummate our relationship with everybody waiting outside mm. So everybody's waiting there like... And then we would come out and now we're married and now the wedding party could start. And that was the, that was the, that was the basic process. Now, turn to Exodus 6. I want to show you some things in the Word of God and connect some dots here. Exodus 6 verse 6. It says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. Laka. Laka. I will take you as my own people. Laka. Turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 5. It says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Segula. Segula. Do you realize that to, to the Hebrew people, you didn't have to explain to them this is a wedding? They're like, Laka. Oh. Segula. Like, you girls in here, you, you, you're, you understand this more than us guys, you know. Like, for a girl to hear, I want to make you my own. It's kind of like, oh. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. A double all. Yeah. Like you guys understand, like this is like romantic sort of language. <clears throat> it, 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 look down in verse ten, same Exodus nineteen ten. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Wash. Mikvah. Mikvah. So, I love this. So we've got Lakah. We've got Segula. We've got Mikvah. What's got to come next? Ketubah. So if we're in Exodus 19, what happens in Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments, which would be a Ketubah. Listen, the Ten Commandments are not conditions for God to love you. They're proof that He already does. It's a marriage proposal. You don't propose to people you don't love already. This is proof that God already loves us and wants us to have the best life. He's proposing to a group of people that hardly have their stuff together. Remember, he's proposing to a group of people that he had to later tell them, don't throw your children in fire. That's a bad plan. He's proposing to a group of people that he had to later tell them, don't have sex with your mother. It's a bad idea. He, he, he's proposing to a group of people that, that, that he had to tell them all. read Leviticus and, and you'll see the things that he had to make clear to them and a lot of things in Leviticus you're like oh okay a lot of things in Leviticus you're like was that really a problem these people did not have their stuff together and God was proposing to them anyway because God wanted to marry them and then clean them up God wanted to marry them and then spend a lifetime journey with them to make them clean and whole Ketubah. So, so if we look at the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal, it really helps us. You should have no other gods before me. That makes sense. In other words, if we're going to be married, I'm going to be it. I'm going to be the one and only. Oh, you're not going to carry graven images or any likeness or anything and under heaven or under earth. and You all know that. In other, words, in other words, you're going to marry me, I'm going to be the one and only, and you're not going to carry pictures of your old boyfriends. Yeah, that's it. <clears throat> Come on. Um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, if you're going to be married to me, I expect one day in seven to be just between you and me. Which is good marriage advice anyway. Yeah, that's right. Oh. Say it again, I don't think they got it. <laughs> like, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, if you're going to be married to me, one day in seven is just between you and me. And the marriage feast, I don't have time to go into those, but those, those feasts, the seven feasts, it says, these are my appointed feasts. In Hebrew, it says, these are my rehearsal feasts. Amen. What do you have before you have a marriage supper? Before you have a wedding, what do you have? You have a, a, a wedding rehearsal. Yeah, what, what does the whole Bible end with? The marriage supper of the lambs. So he's like, seven times a year, we're going to practice this. So once, once a week and seven times a year, we're going to get together. It's just going to be me and you. It's going to be our weekend together. It's just really cool. Oh, don't use my name in vain. In other words, if you marry me, you're going to have power of attorney to, to sign my name. Don't put my name on things that I wouldn't. So, so these, these ten, these, this, this ketubah comes down. Now remember, the Hebrew people would have understood this as, as a wedding proposal. Like, we've got Laka, we've got Segula, we've got Mikvah, We've got ketubah. Like this is a wedding proposal. Now watch what happens. Look at Exodus 20. The, the, the Ten Commandments are given. And in verse 18. 
So if we've got Laka, Fegula, Mikvah, and Ketubah, what's got to come next? Hupa. Now watch this. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Now let's stop and look at this. So they're seeing three things. Thunder, lightning, and billows of smoke. And they're hearing one thing. Trumpets. So they see the thunder and the lightning. Now, it's not like Moses doesn't know how to use the word heard. He says, we saw thunder and lightning. How do you see thunder? You can't. I went and looked that word up in Strong's Concordance. It's the word kole, which every other instance in the Bible is translated voices or languages. So they look up and they see languages. They see voices. Inside lightning, the word lightning there is the word glorified fire. It's, it's the same word that is used to, to, with the, the, like the um, burning bush. So they look up and they see languages inside fire. Where have you seen this before? Acts chapter 2, which happens to be on the same day, just way later. So they look up and they see languages inside fire. And it says they saw billows of smoke. The word billows of smoke there, hoopah. In other words, they're standing at the base of the mountain. The ketubah comes down and God creates this giant marriage altar. And they look up and they see languages from the sky. What are those languages saying? Will you Marry me. Now watch what happens. It says, They stayed at a distance and said, Speak to us yourself, Moses, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. In other words, after hearing the ketubah, they didn't think they could live up to it. They said, No, 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 we don't want this. We can't live up to this. We'll die. We, we can't do this. The, the, the rabbis taught that at this point, God proposed to the whole of creation through 70,000 tongues of fire. Matter of fact, in the mid-1800s, there was a sociologist from England that went to Rangoon, Burma. Like, this is in the mid-1800s. This is like before electricity. Okay? And he went to them. He was studying. And when you're studying a social group of people, the first question you ask normally is, who's your God? Because you've got to learn their belief system. And so this sociologist from England went to Rangoon, Burma and found this tribe of people. And they said, who's your God? And they said, we serve a God named Yah who spoke to us from fire in the sky thousands of years ago. Like, hello. 70,000 tons of fire. But they rejected the proposal of God. They rejected it because they thought they weren't worthy. So this is what God did. He said every day now, every, every year on this day, every year on this day, you've got to remember this. And it was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It happened every year on this day. And here's what would happen. It's the only place in the whole Bible that they were commanded to bring an offering of bread made with yeast. Every other place they had to eat unleavened bread. But on that day, they had to bring an offering of bread to God and the bread had to be made with leaven. And what the priest would do is he would take the bread and he would break it. And he would lift it to God. And he would say something like this, Thank you God that your unleavened life 
is willing to become one with our leavened life. And then he would drop the bread and he would cover it and saturate it in oil, which is symbolic of the... Yeah. And after he did that, he would say, now the day of Pentecost has fully come. Okay. So years later, years later, they're standing in this room and they're celebrating the Feast of Pentecost like they did every year. And some would have been there just because they had to and some would have been just going through the motion and some would have been truly lamenting, why did our ancestors reject the proposal of God? Every year on this day, the guy running it would have given thanks to God for his unleavened life being willing to become one with ours. And he'd have brought it down and he'd have covered it in oil and he would have said, now the day of Pentecost has fully come. But this time something different happened. This time they got a second chance. And it says they're standing in the room and the whole room filled with a billow of smoke. Hoopah. They looked up and they saw tongues inside fire, languages inside fire. All of them would have known this happened. At, this is the same day. It's the same thing that happened. The only difference is this time, they spoke back. Which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. See, the whole point of Pentecost was that God wants to marry you, leaven and all. That God trusts His Holy Spirit enough to saturate your leaven and make you usable. That God trusts Himself enough that He knows if He can put Himself in you, He can clean you up from the inside out. This was a revelation that came to me. It changed my imaginations about God. That God is in me. And He likes it. That there's no place I'd rather be than in God. But there's no place God would rather be than in me. He chose me before I chose Him. He chose me. He made the first move. He took all the risks. In love, the one who takes all the risk is the one who puts it out there first. When I was in junior high, I wanted to ask a girl named Leslie out. And I made the mistake, I told all my friends I was going to ask her out before school. And there was, everybody was standing out in the schoolyard, and I took that long walk across the... I made two mistakes, I did it before school, and I told all my friends first. So I'm walking across that whole big schoolyard. Blah, 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 blah. What if she says no? If she says no, I'll be humiliated. They'll make fun of me the rest of the day. Luckily, she said yes. But the one who walks across the schoolyard is the one taking all the risk. Hmm. The Bible says that God demonstrated His love for me and that He died for me while I was still a sinner. In other words, in His life with you and in your life with Him, God took all the risk. That's how much He loves you. That's how much He loves you. He loves you enough to take all the risk. He's in you, and He likes it. And no matter what your leaven is, God is willing to work that out with you. He is faithful to complete anything He starts. God wants to marry you, leaven and all. I bless you tonight as leadership in, church, in the church of Jesus Christ, which is God's biggest idea. I bless you tonight 
to be reproductions of Jesus Christ in this whole community. I bless you tonight to be ministers of compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. That we are to minister in the disposition of Messiah. I bless you tonight to be able to hallow that in secret so you can manifest it in public. I bless you tonight to know, I mean know, deep down inside of you, deep down inside of you, I bless you tonight to know that God Himself is in you and He likes it. That God is comfortable in you. God likes you. That you are clean, 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 washed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. You're washed with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not one sin on your record. That there's no guilt that you need to put on people. That you can be a minister of Messiah. By operating in His disposition. Would you close your eyes with me and let's pray together. And I want you to realize something. That the spiritual language you used earlier is actually God's love language to you. It's, it's your pillow talk with God. It's the, it's the things, you're actually letting it out of your spirit, the things that God whispers into your spirit in private times with Him. It's the language that God uses to tell you the secrets that He has for you that you don't know yet, but He had destined for your glory before time began. It, it, it's that language that, that, that begins to speak. See, there was a major paradigm shift in, in the Old Testament because they rejected God's marriage proposal. He spoke to them in dreams and interpretations. Now we have tongues and interpretations, which means that now we are able to speak what they only had the grace to see. So important. I want you just to drop into God. I want you to be still and know that He is God. Just take a second and be still and know that He is God. Let your mind, let your spirit wrap around how big He is. Ask yourself this question. What would I feel like if I could feel His compassion for people? Just one-tenth of it. Just one percent of it. What would I feel if I could feel one-tenth of His compassion for people? How would I feel, Lord, if I could feel innocent in Your sight? How would I feel, Lord, if I could feel the truth that I'm a vessel that You wanted to be with? I'm a vessel that You wanted to marry. I'm a vessel that You wanted to, to come into and live with and have an intimate relationship with. I am a person that you desire to be with. I am your treasured possession, God. What would you feel like if you could feel that truth? If you could feel the truth now, that there's not one sin on your record. If you could feel the truth now that anything you struggle with, it's a process that God's working you through to make you whole. It's not that He doesn't love you, it's that He does. What would you feel like if you could feel the bigness of God coming on your life? What would you feel like if you could feel just a smidgen of the calling He has for you? That He loves you so much He's whispering mysteries into your spirit. What would you feel like to feel that? What would you feel like if you could feel the healing power of God coming out of you onto somebody else?
How would you feel if tomorrow somebody's coming through the doors of the church and just by shaking your hand they can feel the love of God because you're that in tune with Him? Peter was so in tune with God that even his shadow raised somebody from the dead. What would that feel like? Would you stand with me? I just want to pray for us tonight. There's a great atmosphere here. And I want to pray for us tonight. So I want you to be still and know that He is God. You might want to do whatever you do when you worship. You might want to, to put your hands out like this. You might want to raise your hands to the sky. You, you, I just want you to do whatever you do to be still and know that He is God. Let yourself become completely aware of His presence now. That His presence is completely filling this room. From pillar to post, corner to top, floor to ceiling, His presence is here. Yeah. Father, let your presence begin to settle over us now. Just let it come now. There. Let that sense of your presence sweep across this place. We are ministers of you. What will we be like when we minister the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God? We hallow that in secret, Lord. May we be ministers of it in public. We hallow it in secret. May we be ministers of it in public.